It's the 23rd of December 1991. A blizzard falls over Stockholm, keeping its traffic to a standstill. A hundred kilometres away, a car has crashed in a ditch and three bank robbers are fleeing from it. The police don't know the identities of the men they're chasing. But Stefan Thunberg did. Hi, uh, my name is Stefan Thunberg. I'm uh, the co-author of uh, The Father. I'm also a screenwriter in Sweden, but most of all, I'm the fourth brother who follow robbery after robbery from the inside. Hi, I'm Anders Roslund, um, co-author of The Father. Today I'm a best-selling author, but back then when all this happened, I was still a TV reporter at the biggest news station in Sweden, and it was my job to cover this three-year-long period of brutal madness. Together they are Anton Svensson. And this is Made in Sweden, the six-part podcast about the incredible true story that inspired their novel, The Father. I'm Ed Wood, and this is a family tale like no other. Episode 1. Never be a rat. Back then, uh, on the 23rd of December, 20 years ago, the news reported that three robbers were on the run in the blizzard after crashing with their escape car. I realized very quickly that one of them was my oldest brother, uh, and one was a childhood friend, but the third one, I didn't know who it was yet. That night, uh, the police put in all the resources in the hunt, and I followed the news until midnight. I heard how the robbers were surrounded in this summer cabin, in this blizzard. I was so exhausted, and with only one thought in my head before I fell asleep was that they're going to die tonight. My biggest, my oldest brother is going to die tonight. And did you know how your brother would behave? Was he trained for this? Yeah, he was. He was trained in the military. He was uh, heavily armed in this situation. I know that because I've seen the weapons. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Let's not get into that yet. Let's go back to your childhood and your family and hear about why your oldest brother Leo and your youngest brothers, uh, Felix and Vincent, decided to rob a series of banks in the early 1990s. I really have to go back like, to our early childhood. And we were living in a suburb to Stockholm called Skogås with uh, me, my three brothers, my mother and my father. My father Ivan is from uh, Yugoslavia. He came to Sweden in the 60s. And then we uh, uh, grown up there in Skogås with them. And uh, to understand why all this happened later in my life, I think we have to talk a little bit about the relationship between my, between my oldest brother Leo and my father and uh, how my father was when we were growing up, uh, how he tried to build this strong, strong family and this brotherhood between us. Uh, this, he has this idea of to build a clan. Was this a typical thing at the time? Was, was Stockholm a very masculine place? Was your father part of the culture or an unusual person? Sweden was not a masculine place in that time, no. But my father was very, uh, you know, he was a strong guy and he uh, was a fighter. So he was somebody that you really saw in this place that we, we were growing up. But, you know, it was a suburb and it was a lot of, you know, immigrants coming in that time and it was a lot of fights between us kids, you know, and things like that. And Anders Rosland, you were a journalist at the time. Uh, you were covering crime. Uh, what was, what was the area in which Stefan grew up like? Was it seen as dangerous? Was Stockholm seen as dangerous at the time? Was this an environment in which a gang could come and dominate? 
these areas was a solution from the government. It was called the One Million Program. Uh, in Sweden, we're supposed to build one million apartments in a very short time to get rid of the problems nobody has anywhere to live. But that was how it was, and that was, of course, a base, a foundation for solving problems in unusual ways. And where were you in this? Would you have considered Stefan's childhood to be tougher? Would you, you know, would you have recognised it? I was raised in an exact uh, suburban place, but in the south of Sweden, in another suburb uh, of another town with the same dilemmas. Uh, with uh, We had, uh, I think, 70% immigrants in, in that place, and we had uh, unemployment. We had It was the same place, really. Uh, so I understand everything that Stefan is talking about, and I can also see the same father over and over again in my own father and other fathers. That, that was a masculinity at that time, but not as typical as Stefan's maybe, because he brought something else uh, as well. And what was it that he brought Stefan? He brought a temperament. He brought uh, an idea that the family is stronger than everything. If you build the family as a tight unity, nothing can break down that family. That was his philosophy. And yet he was a drinker. He was a drinker too, yes. And violent. Violent. And sometimes he was a nice guy too, but... Uh, what are you, what, give me one of your nice memories. What can, you, what can you remember about your father that was a good thing? Oh, um, uh, he, he really tried to understand problems in a silent way when he was sober. I could see in his eyes that he really tried to be something. Maybe he wasn't, you know, he wasn't from Sweden. He was not a Swede, but he really tried hard when he was sober to be a part of the society and to uh, build up a small uh, construction, call it firm or company, small one, uh, like only him. And he wanted us to be a part of it when we were growing up. Like he, my oldest brother was, you know, he was always helping my father when they were out and when he was on uh, had a job you know painting a house or something like that so but he tried really hard to build something up uh, who we could take over and but his methods and his way of looking at conflicts uh, was really not uh, uh, good and it was all about loyalty to him yes but also loyalty between us brothers because he wanted to uh, connect us with that philosophy that we uh, you have to keep together against uh, threats from outside, always. Keep together. Of course, he wanted us to be part of the family, and he was the father. He was the father of the family. But as in all family, that you have violence as a language, the older son was uh, turning against him. And there's this section in the book, in the novel, where he illustrates to his children the strength of their relationships, that they're stronger together using popsicle sticks. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of that now. Pick up your lolly sticks. Leo searches the ground for lolly sticks dropped into the wilted grass and brown leaves. They've eaten so many that his stomach still feels bloated. Every single one and then come here holding your sticks. They count to eleven and then walk over to the two pines and Papa stretches out his hand. Give them to me. They are supposed to sit around him, like three Indians around their chief. Good. Now you each take one back. One stick for each of you. They grab them and sit down as before, holding three lolly sticks, waiting. 
Now you're going to break them. They all hear what Papa said, but they don't understand him. In the middle, break them. Leo! Papa's voice is impatient, annoyed, the tone that means anything can happen. Breathe in, breathe out. The lolly stick lies like a bridge between Leo's hands, and he pushes on it, breaking it into pieces. So easy. Felix then does the same thing as Leo, the two ends, one in each hand. It hurts as the stick presses against the skin and bones. Again. Again. Felix? Felix presses again, doesn't pay attention to the pain as the edges dig in deep, and it breaks. Soft ribs protrude like antennae from each fractured edge. Vincent. A three-year-old body with three-year-old legs on his way to the water, the wind in his thin hair. He gets down on his knees and picks up something from the shore, then comes back with a stone that dwarfs his hands. He puts the lolly stick on the uneven surface of the bank. Three-year-old arms high above his head, he brings the stone down hard on the stick. He repeats this several times. It begins to splinter, at least on one edge. How did it go? They're gathered in a ring, and Leo and Felix hold out the two pieces of their lolly sticks. They're broken? Yes. Completely? Yes. Good. Now, Leo, you're the strongest. Here. You take these five sticks from me. Break them in half. At the same time. With my hands. Just like you did before. He looks at Papa, who has finally stopped trembling inside. He's going somewhere with this, but won't say where. Five lolly sticks, a much thicker bridge between his hands. Leo strains his shoulders, arms, fingers, and he can't do it. The palms of his hands are sore from trying to break stick after stick, and from the resistance of five of them. He just can't do it. I... He doesn't dare look at Papa. He can't look into those eyes that have the same stare Papa used on the blonde, curly-haired parasite and his long-haired body outside the shopping centre. Can't do it. Five thin sticks. Leo drops them and they bounce off the rock. He closes his eyes. Papa's hand touches him, and it doesn't feel angry, it just rests lightly on his shoulder. That, boys, is our family. Our clan. Papa picks up five sticks, slowly holding each stick up one at a time in front of their faces. This stick is Vincent. This is Felix. And this one is Leo. And Mama. And Papa. Then he bundles up all the sticks. A clan always sticks together. The sticks now lie between his own huge hands. Vincent, Felix, Leo, Mama... Papa, we are a clan. You are my clan. A clan is small, but it can never be destroyed. A clan has a leader who leads, and who will hand over responsibility to the next leader. Do you understand? To understand what really happened there, it's like my oldest brother, Leo in the book, he, he, he was meant to be the leader of this clan. But... The conflict between my father and my oldest brother was starting here. It's, it's start to grow here. It start like a sickness, you can say. If you, because, you know, the oldest brother, the leader, have to uh, make his revolt against the father, 
who happens later. But when he, when he was how old? How how old are the children we're yeah. talking about here? He, was, he was, was eleven, twelve, thirteen, eleven, twelve. Years. And this was when the conflict really started yeah. between him and your father. Yeah, you can say that. But you know, I remember once, uh, and this is a very very central part of the book. But me and my older brother was out, uh, and younger kids was uh, uh, starting a fight with us, and and they hit my brother, and and they. A lot. So when we come home and my father saw these bruise, bruises, he understand that uh, we have a problem out there. And he, he told us that he decided to learn Leo to fight as a man, teach him to fight like a man. And my father was an old boxer, so, so he, he really could, you know, he, he know what he talked about. He learned my brother to fight in, in the, yeah, under a couple of weeks. And I remember that I saw in my father, uh, in my brother's face that day when he had decided to pick a fight with it, that, that guy again, you know, who hit him. So he went down to the school and I wasn't there, but I remember that I was outside uh, the house where we were living and I saw my brother, he was coming and after him, the two guys who had hit him three, four weeks before that was following him and they start fighting outside and I saw them start fighting and I saw my brother uh, he was so good at that time to fight. And he, he, he hit that guy so hard. And, you know, I was like, now you get it, man. And, and then I saw this other guy, he pu- pull up a knife. And this is really what happened. If you talk about a child who grows up very fast, this, that, that three weeks when he learned to fight and he pick a fight again and, he, and the other guy put up a knife, you know, it was an explosion of violence. It was like from a fight to another fight, to a knife. And I thought, he's going to die now. And I saw that, you know, it's a knife fight. A single blow, right hand, right on the nose. Hassa doesn't know what's hit him. He just sinks down to his knees, tears spurting from his tear ducts, blood flowing down his mouth and chin and neck, just where Leo lay earlier. Kekunen arrives next and he's panting loudly, quickly. He's a lot shorter than Hassa, but stronger and more powerful. He strikes the first blow right past Leo's cheek, but Leo's knees are so soft and his feet so fast that when Kekkonen throws a second and a third punch, they're not even close. Leo's first punch makes contact, not quite on the nose, more the cheek. The stocky boy is still standing and hits back. His legs and feet slide like before, soft, fast, and Leo hits the temple, then the shoulder, then the other cheek, until Kekkonen reels and his eyes change. The Finnish bastard's eyes turn from present and angry to absent and scared. Leo is about to turn towards the balcony, towards Papa and Felix, when everything changes again. He doesn't see how or why, but Papa suddenly starts shouting and pointing, as if trying to warn him. Someone grabs him from behind. Leo squirms, pulls, he needs to get free, and he's almost out of his grasp when it falls out of his jacket pocket. Papa's Mora knife. He's not quick enough. He bends to the ground to pick it up, and it's not there. Kekkonen is faster and waves it in front of him. When a knife flashes in front of your face, it's mostly the blade that's visible, especially when it strikes. Cut him for fuck's sake! shouts Hassa to Kekkonen, lying on the filthy asphalt with both hands on his nose as if trying to hold it in place. The first thrust sinks deep into Leo's left shoulder, or actually into the left shoulder of his thick quilted jacket. The Mora knife rips open a big hole and the white fluffy lining tumbles out. When the second thrust comes, he angles his upper body a little, 
turning it to the side, and the knife cuts through the air beside him. The third comes faster and straighter, hits the jacket again, the sleeve, but the tear is smaller. Hassa shouts, cut him, cut him! And Kekkonen stares at Leo with those demonic eyes that sneer every time he thrusts the blade forward. He's aiming for Leo's face and manages two more slashes before the front door opens behind them. Leo doesn't turn around. The blade's too close. If he did, he wouldn't escape the next thrust. Then he hears them, so he knows. Footsteps on the asphalt. Barefoot footsteps. Papa's footsteps. And Papa's breath. And Papa's voice. Drop the knife, you little bastard. It's a dangerous situation, isn't it? Because you've got loyalty, but you've also got the idea of shame. Of, of, of being ashamed of the violence, but of being ashamed if you go and tell someone else about the violence. Absolutely. And it's like a shame culture, you know. What you're ashamed, ashamed of, you know, don't talk about outside the family. So you keep it inside the family. And this is straight back into the idea of crime, isn't it, Anders? The shame culture, the, the idea of being able to do things behind closed doors. And 20, we're talking about something that was 20 years before, well, 10 years actually. So there was a decade before the crimes, the bank robberies. Anders, how did this criminal culture, this family's criminal culture, first come to you? How did you first hear about the robberies? The first time I heard about these robberies was as the TV reporter working that specific day, and it was um, a hit against an armed truck. And uh, I learned that the, the crew in the truck were threatened in a way that sort of lived in their mind forever later. They met a kind of violence. They were not hit. They were not uh, sort of uh, physically hurt, but they were traumatized anyway because they felt this wall of violence, that tool of violence we were talking about. I don't think that Leo turned violent, as you said. I think he learned using violence as a tool, and that's a difference. And that he learned and that he used in that armed truck was which was that first hit. And I was sitting in my, uh, at my t- TV desk uh, waiting for the next job. And there it was, uh, five, six o'clock in the evening. And it was uh, 10 kilometers outside Stockholm. And it was, at that point, just a normal hit against an, a normal armed truck. Uh, these things happen. And, but the escape, they just went out in thin air. They escaped from that spot. And that was the story at that point. It was not connected to anything else. Just that, only that hit. Made in Sweden was presented by Edward. The authors were Anders Rosland and Stefan Thunberg, and the producer was Gavin Osborne. The Father by Anton Svensson and published by Sphere is available from Waterstones and all other good bookshops. The audio book recorded and produced by Chatterbox Audio, is available from Audible now. The Made in Sweden podcast series was recorded at the RNIB studios with post-production by Chatterbox Audio. This has been a Nashet Audio production.